Welcome to Seismic Shift, the podcast where we help leaders who want to be the very best versions of themselves. I'm Michelle Johnston, your host, and I'm excited that you are listening. Here is what we believe. Today's leaders need more than power and control to get the best from their teams. They need meaningful connection. Through interviews with some of today's top business leaders, we are going to explore how leaders' ability to connect with themselves, their teams, and their organizations defines their ultimate success or failure. Now, on to today's episode. Today, we're going to be focusing on connection with yourself, specifically the importance of owning your story. And I can think of no better leader to speak on this subject than Kenneth Polite. Currently, Kenneth is the Assistant Attorney General of the Criminal Justice Division at the U.S. Department of Justice. Kenneth has an incredible story of growing up in the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans, one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. When his half-brother was killed by violent crime in 2004, he vowed he would do everything in his power to be a part of a solution. I got to know Kenneth when he was the U.S. attorney here in New Orleans, where I live. Right from the start, you could tell that Kenneth was a totally different type of U.S. attorney. He didn't lead first with power, which is typical of U.S. attorneys' offices. He led instead with connection, connection to his people, and connection to his community. I know you will enjoy my discussion with Kenneth Polite. I'm passionate about what I have observed with the seismic shift, that command and control no longer works. We could have a huge debate of whether it ever worked, but it certainly was the norm and it certainly was in vogue. And we don't have resilience now as um, as human beings to put up with any sort of abusive leadership or toxicity in the workplace. And so my entire thesis in my book, The Seismic Shift in Leadership, is that right now to be successful as a leader, as a human, it's all about extraordinary connection. And so ordinary connection before was just transactional. You know, it was much more just work focused, do this, do that, very directive. But what I've seen, the leaders who've lost their jobs subscribe to that old model. But the leaders like our guest today, Kenneth Polite, who get it and recognize the importance of extraordinary connection and really making time and making sure that it's intentional and deliberate to connect at a personal human level, those are the leaders that truly thrive. So welcome, Kenneth Polite who is in a relatively new role in the Department of Justice, the Assistant Attorney um, of the Criminal Division, the Assistant Attorney General of the Criminal Division. That's correct. That's correct. Since July of 2021, I've been uh, in that role and making the trip down to D.C. throughout the week. And uh, my family's been extraordinarily supportive (laughs) of that process. It's been a lot of change for us. Well, tell us, okay, so do you mind sharing with the listeners, because those who have already read my book, who've got advanced copies, the ones that they tell me about, they're like, Kenneth Polite, his story is amazing. Do you mind sharing real fast your story for the listeners? Because it begins with you and your connection with yourself. 
Well, thank you so much, Michelle. And again, thank you for everything you're doing and spotlighting uh, the shift in the way we're embracing leadership now. Uh, as you said, my story, I'm from New Orleans, born and raised, uh, born to teenage parents. Uh, my mother and father were in housing projects at the time that I was born. My mother uh, ended up as a single mother uh, fairly shortly after I was born. Uh, my folks divorced when I was about four or five, and uh, she ended up raising three boys by herself in the lower ninth ward, which um, many of you may know is one of the, the poor areas of the city of New Orleans. And despite our humble upbringings, uh, my mom, in connection with my loved ones, managed to build just a tremendous wealth of community and support for us, particularly around our education. And uh, thanks to my mom's sacrifices throughout the years, uh, I was able to to get a fantastic education first at De La Salle High School, where I graduated as the first African-American valedictorian, and then on to Harvard and Georgetown and uh, on and on. And uh, I've just been blessed to have some fantastic mentors along the way and some fantastic family members, including my wife, who I met on my very first day of school at Harvard and uh, has been frankly, the rock that has helped our family uh, through some, our own seismic shifts <laughs> personally and professionally over the years. Well said. So how do you think that having that connection with yourself and really embracing, okay, this is my story. This is my narrative. This is who I am. And I think I pretty much need to own it in, in order to connect with others. That's what I have found. The leaders who've lost their jobs were trying to be somebody else. They were uncomfortable yeah. in their own skin, hiding parts of themselves, thinking they had to be like this or like that. And then they lost connection with their team. It was over. But yeah. you had a strong sense. You were you didn't hide pieces of yourself. I, I, I To be candid, I'm not sure if I always was so out, out in front related to my story. And I think that that is one of the struggles of professional development and, frankly, leadership, particularly in a professional context that I see the best leaders start to develop that 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 sense of uh, you know, being genuine about who they are, bringing their full selves to the workplace, uh, not necessarily hiding parts of themselves. And frankly, it was the advice I got from a fantastic, fantastic mentor uh, in New Orleans, uh, a guy by the name of Lloyd Dennis, uh, who created the Silverback Society, which uh, is a, uh, a program that mentors young uh, young men in the city of New Orleans. And uh, when I started the, to be on the path of becoming U.S. attorney, he asked me a little bit about myself. And I shared a little bit of the narrative that I just talked about, but in particular highlighted uh, some of the, 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 the connections I have to both law enforcement. My father's a police officer, 37-year veteran of New Orleans Police Department. And my brother is also a police officer in Houston. But I've also had individuals in my family who have been in prison, been incarcerated, and even have lost uh, loved ones to street violence, including my own half-brother. And, and Lloyd was the one who was very instrumental in, in encouraging me to be out in front and tell your story as much as possible. And, and, and frankly, doing that will help you connect not just to the people who will work with you or under you, um, but frankly, to the communities that you're, you're going to be serving. And that they will appreciate the fact that you are, in fact, a person who understands that 
building community trust, being part of the community is the most important tool that we have, particularly in law enforcement in terms of preserving public safety. So that's that's kind of where that came from. And since then, it's um, it's been a hallmark of the way that I've approached uh, approached the way that I, I deal with the workplace. When you were the U.S. attorney in New Orleans, it, it really blew me away how you turned what always is a bastion of power, you know, and so many U.S. attorneys, so many lawyers in particular lead with that power. It's all about power, right? And you came into the office and and turned it upside down and said, it's about connection. Could you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? I, you know, it's, it still strikes me that, 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 that concept, that model of being a, a prosecutor is the way that people have traditionally both viewed and, and, you know, move forward and embrace the role. It is very much, you know, let's bring the hammer. I think there's two, two things there. One, you know, I came in as a U.S. attorney under uh, then Attorney General Eric Holder, and one of his very first pieces of advice that he gave to me, and I know he, he advocated the same and shared it with, uh, with other U.S. attorneys, was that our role was not to be prosecutors, it was to be community problem solvers, right? And so the idea of, you know, your job is not, your job's not to put people in prison. <laughs> it's to figure out ways to use every tool at your disposal, whether it's in enforcement, which is critical, but also things like reentry or intervention or treatment or most importantly, prevention and helping young people avoid the criminal justice system altogether. Those are all the types of tools that we need to bring, bring to bear. And, and frankly, the, the, the idea of, of embracing just the power aspect of that job misses a lot of those tools that you can, you can utilize. You know, look, everybody knows who the U.S. attorney is. We know who the assistant attorney general is for criminal division. We know who the attorney general is. Those are positions that we all know have a great deal of power within our within our society. I don't need to be out front in front with that. That comes with the title and with the role. I think it's the other aspects that you can bring to bear in that role, particularly, you know, we talk about the ability to convene. Right. I mean, there are if I call together a group of community leaders or business leaders or, you know, nonprofit leaders and say, I want to meet with you. The call is usually answered. I'm usually able to connect people who we can't necessarily get in, the, in a room otherwise, but for the authority of using that power to convene uh, that comes with that job and, and, and making those connections, not just through me, but to those parties that otherwise aren't able or aren't willing to talk to one another. Gosh, I, I, would have, I had to guess. I, I don't remember that about Eric Holder. That is... Um... He has to be an anomaly in the way that he set your expectation or his expectation for you. Do you think other attorney generals said that? Well, I, I know I know for a fact that our our current attorney general certainly feels that way as well. He is someone who is a is an alum of the criminal division, has spent a career, a, a wholly separate career on the bench and has seen you know, the, the role that enforcement and, and prosecution can play, but also its limitations. And certainly, certainly he is a person that that views the use of all of those tools uh, as being important in our role in preserving public safety. Loretta Lynch is, a, is another fantastic uh, mentor of mine. And I was I had the pleasure of serving on her advisory committee during the time that she was 
uh, that she was the attorney general. And I know she very much embraced the same. You know, I think part of part of what you get with people like Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch in particular, those are people who have been line prosecutors. They've been U.S. attorneys, so they've had to deal with community issues. They've also been, been defense attorneys as well, right? And so, and they're also individuals who come from humble beginnings in a lot of respects as well. You know, uh, Eric is a, is, a, is a New York boy. You know, he, he talks about his own upbringing in the same way that I, I try to, uh, obviously coming from a, from a very different city, but uh, those, are, those, those perspectives, that broad perspective and bringing that to bear in these jobs, I think is a, is a, is a fundamental part of, of what we're talking about and being effective as a leader. Absolutely. And it reminds me, I'll never forget reading, it was in the New York Times one Sunday a couple years ago, Linsky out of Columbia did research and he named it, your whisper is a shout. When you're in a leadership position, your whisper is a shout. Everything you do is amplified. And so again, I keep kind of going back to how you explained that you didn't go into the the position, and then we'll get to your current position as U.S. Attorney in in New Orleans, as thinking it as all from a power perspective that it was your community problem solver, but that you know that came from above, and that 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 whisper was a, was a shout. It ha, you know, and it set the tone for how you would measure how you felt that you would be measured as successful or not. And yeah. so, I, I want our <laughs> listeners to understand how powerful that is, right? It it was so interesting we, that that whisper is a shout idea, and and really coming. I'm not sure if when I walked in day one, I fully appreciated the significance of what you just said. But it, it, it quickly became clear to me. I had my very the very first speech that I gave as U.S. Attorney was to the Chamber of Commerce, and in the Chamber of Commerce speech, I talked about you know what some of my initiatives were going to be, and then I, I at the very back half of it, I talked about hey you know I talked to a lot of business leaders. And a lot of them asked me, you know, Kenneth, what can I do to help you? How, how, how can I help play a role in terms of preserving public safety? And I, and I said, the, the answer is give people a job when they're coming out of prison. And I talked, so then I started talking about kind of models of reentry. And one of the things that that ultimately led to is a partnership with the Chamber of Commerce and the Business Council of New Orleans, where we we created a program or modeled it after a program out of Michigan called 32-2, where we, we tried to get 30 local businesses in New Orleans to commit to hiring two formerly incarcerated individuals for at least a two-year period. And by the end of that, we had well over 30 businesses that had taken on that pledge, and we had placed almost 20 different individuals in jobs during that time. But it was one of these things where, like the, the the community reaction to that, like I wasn't prepared that this kind of part of a speech, which I knew was important to me, but it very quickly, I think, helped reshape the discussion within the larger New Orleans community around issues of public safety, and particularly how reentry could play a role in improving it. I mean, look, New Orleans, as I used to say, was is the epicenter of incarceration in the world, right? If you think about New the United States having uh, leading the world in terms of its incarceration rates, Louisiana at the time, and maybe, you know, back today, it kind of flip flops back and forth between Oklahoma sometimes between leading the country. And then within that state of Louisiana, the parish of Orleans is the most heavily incarcerated. And so, you know, and 
that those are 95% of those people in prison, they're going to come back into our communities. And so you have to be thoughtful. We need to be thinking about what are we doing to help those individuals become law-abiding, productive members of our community, as opposed to going back through the revolving door of recidivism. Yes, incredible. And I love that that was your first speech and what an impact it made on the community and and really was a call to action for businesses to get involved and connect. And so let's segue into your new role. Tell me, yeah. how, how are you connecting with your team? What Tell me what you're doing. How is it? Well, first of all, I'm blessed to have just an absolutely fantastic team. I'm not sure if people understand uh, the criminal division is one of the largest components within Maine Justice. We have individuals that deal with issues ranging from fraud, and that could involve things like healthcare fraud or Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations, to computer crimes and intellectual properties, to human trafficking and, and alien smuggling, uh, human rights violations, uh, narcotics, organized crime, money laundering, all types of, we've got, a, we've got our own appellate section, and then we've got a whole nother section that deals with our international relations between the Department of Justice uh, and our international partners. And it includes individuals that are involved in you know, processing requests for information and when we're extraditing individuals back and forth between our countries, that all comes out of the criminal division. But we also have teams of people who help train and mentor prosecutors and law enforcement officers around the world. All of that's within the criminal division. Criminal division is almost is over 1,200 individuals that I get a chance to work with on a day-to-day basis and, and, and serve as their, uh, their representative to the public. And frankly, uh, I've been just blown away by the capacity and the, the, the expertise that these individuals have. So start there with the team. I will tell you, and I'm sure you've heard this over and over again from many leaders, but COVID has just been just a, a, a terribly difficult time period. This pandemic has made that issue around connections so much more difficult, particularly for someone like me, who I just hate being glued to a desk. I would much rather be out walking the halls or out in the community even better or traveling and being able to connect with people. Um, and it's just uh, just been dangerous for us to be able to do that. And so we've had to be as creative as possible in, in trying to, to, co- to come up with other ways to connect with the community and in particular with our workforce. And, and, and I think we've been able to do some of that. I'll, 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 I'll just jump in and tell you a little because it's been so interesting as, as we've been able to to talk about trying to be creative here. One of the things that I do is I do use video a lot more. We do a lot more recordings. And one of the things is I, I, I basically created kind of a uh, uh, my own uh, talk show, Michelle, where, where I, I uh, it's called United Division. And uh, we, we get an opportunity to uh, have a one-on-one fireside chat with one individual employee from within the criminal division. And we spend about, it ends up being about a five to 10 minute clip and we talk about their lives and their, you know, their professional uh, experiences and what they do on behalf of the division. And it gets, gives us a chance to spotlight, you know, the most experienced individuals who are revered within the department, people like like Patty Stimler, who just stepped down as our, our long serving appellate chief to new individuals 
who are you know new employees like Raven Gaddy, who has uh, traveled the world and just was hired as my office manager very recently uh, after a stint in the Peace Corps, right? And so like people are coming from all these varieties of backgrounds and able to share share all of that. And you know, again, not even in the best of times when we were in our normal workflow, these were these were oftentimes components within the criminal division that were very much siloed. You would not get a chance to meet some of these individuals and get to know them personally like that. And so that's been very well received. The other thing that we spent a lot of time on is, uh, again, I mentioned those 12 over 1200 employees. I've, I've spent uh, at least two to three minutes talking to each and every one of them. It's been almost oh. like a speed, speed dating kind of a process where we've Thanks to my my section leaders and our unit chiefs, we've we've organized, uh, you know, group uh, uh, zooms or our team meetings, and we've gone through one on one, and I've I've gotten a chance to hear everything about different people, literally each and every one, and it, my team hated the idea because they were like, this is going to take so much time. By the end, they were like, it still took a lot of time, but it was uh, very much worth it. And uh, that has been very well received by our workforce and frankly has been truly transformative to me to get to know some of the people who are doing work for us, again, throughout the country and around the globe. I mean, we've got individuals in countries like Brazil and Argentina and, you know, we've got folks in Hong Kong, we've got folks staged at The Hague, we've got folks sitting in Ethiopia, you know, getting to know all about what their work is and, you know, how their families are doing and, you know, getting to know a little bit about them personally has just been fantastic, so. That is extraordinary connection. That is exactly what I'm talking about. It's it's going above and beyond right now because of what we're going through. And I really don't think we're going to go back. I think this hybrid environment is going to be the way. And you're right. And you've got to, as leaders, you've got to think creatively. How do I personally connect? Because yeah. it is so much more about now seeing you on the other side of this computer as a human. And, and asking about, a lot of leaders have been scared about asking personal questions. I don't want to know what's going on personally. Let's just accomplish our goals. And I keep saying, but you're not going to get the results you want unless you figure out how to meaningfully connect. Yeah. Well, so I, I, I'll tell you, I, and look, my HR folks will tell, will tell me like, hey, there's certain questions that you can't ask, but if someone offers it, then you know maybe we can start having a conversation about those things. But I think the way that you, and this is the way that I try to approach that as much as possible and encourage folks to build an environment where sharing, again, all of themselves, you know, as part of, of what they bring to the workplace is I try to do the same. Right. So one of the very one of the most recent videos that I did was was from my basement while I was in quarantine. I tested positive for for, 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 for COVID from COVID on Christmas Day. And I did this video just like talking about, you know, hey, I'm my family's got me trapped in, this, in my basement right now. That's where I'm recording from. Uh, you know, I look like I'm dressed up. I have my, my button down and my jacket on, but trust me, I've got sweatpants on and, you know, just like all of you and, uh, just talked openly about the challenges that have come through COVID, myself testing positive, my little one, uh, we've had like everybody else, number of family members, my grandfather, I lost my grandfather to COVID in the earlier stages of, of the pandemic. And so, you know, I've talked openly about that as well. And, 
and, and talked about despite all of those challenges, we have people within this division who are doing extraordinary things. First of all, there's a lot of people who aren't able to be locked away in their homes. They're still having to travel around to try cases and appear in courts and interview witnesses and uh, conduct the work on behalf of the, 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 the public. And so thanking those people publicly, but two, recognizing that there are people who are doing just what I'm doing, which is trying to build connections in extraordinary ways that they weren't necessarily doing prior to the pandemic. So they're checking up on one another more frequently. They're, you know, sending condolences when people are struggling with medical issues they're they're sending food over to people's houses right i mean and they're finding creative ways to celebrate the the good things the weddings the births and all those types of things as well and that's the type of message that i wanted to make sure people appreciated and again i think it comes from being genuine and open as a leader and then hopefully that encourages and fosters an environment where people feel the same gosh i'm just thinking that uh... In the past, I don't know how many years ago, I would imagine somebody in your position who had been diagnosed um, and was um, quarantined in a basement might not even admit it, might pretend that everything was okay. You know, this is punk joke. I mean, from like, uh, you know, because it would be a sign of weakness, right? But it's, it's the ability to say, I am like you. I am stuck in the basement trying to figure this out. And that's what... Well, we had a we had a president FDR who hid the fact that he was in uh, in a wheelchair for for years, right? I mean, that was uh, that was certainly viewed as a as a potential sign of weakness, and he that was not you know those were different times, and we were in the middle of uh, World War II, and and showing that type of strength from the executive office was viewed as the, the appropriate way for him to portray leadership. Uh, you know, interesting enough, he was a leader who found very creative ways to to make connections, though, despite some of those limitations. You know, the whole idea of fireside chats really, you know, <laughs> that's him, right? That's that making that connection with the American people. And so I, 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 I do find lessons from throughout history where people, even in times where this wasn't necessarily as embraced as a model of leadership, the best of leaders like an FDR you know, almost 80 years ago was still trying to find creative ways to connect with, uh, connect with people. I love how you just framed that finding creative ways to connect with people. I was talking with the leader yesterday on a coaching call and she was so funny. She's like, yeah, you know, we've all been told we've got to begin meetings with on a scale of one to 10, how you doing or personally family business. She goes, I just call it crappy happy. (laughs) (laughs) we begin with crappy happy what what have you done that's not so good you are what you experience and what's happy and i thought now that's a creative way of connecting it adds levity you know this is just a really hard time (laughs) but i have found that that the leaders who've given me pushback like michelle i have too much to accomplish on my agenda i can't spend 15 minutes of a meeting going around doing happy crappy i can't do it and then i'll say okay what do you want to achieve well i need these results i said you're not going to get the results unless you embed time to meaningfully connect it's just the way of the world right now i truly believe it and and, and the great resignation has taught us that right is that employees had times to think and not not just employees, humans, and we all just want to be seen, heard, valued, appreciated. So leadership, I think right now is 
hard, harder than it's ever been. Because now you do have to think, how in the world am I going to connect so that my people, 1,200 of your people feel seen, heard, valued, and appreciated? Yeah, it's and it's it's interesting to hear. I've heard leaders talk about those kinds of, you know, meetings and kind of the opening, let's have this open dialogue before we jump into work. And I think it it's interesting. It's an it's an interesting tie back to, you know, thinking about enforcement as like the only tool that we use. And and again, the most create the most effective leaders are the most creative ones, right? That's one way to try to build that type of connection with your people, but you know, nothing is stopping you from picking up the phone and having a one-on-one conversation, right? Or shooting an email to somebody and just saying, hey, thinking about you, hope all is well, right? I mean, I have I have folks who will reach out to me at times about a work issue and I'll, you know, the answer's got to be, I've got to be the person to approve it. And so that could be a one sentence uh, statement in an email, but you know, maybe at the end of it, I say, Hey, by the way, how have you been? And that starts up like an email string that we're talking over the day over email with, but it's one-on-one. And again, it goes to this point of figuring out how to empower people to again, bring themselves to the workplace, but two, to your point, making sure people feel valued and seen and heard. And that's, that can't, that can't be a situation where we're relying on one tool. You have to be as creative as possible in doing it. And using every every opportunity that you have, especially right now. Like a talk show. I mean, that's brilliant, Kenneth. How cool is that? And I love it that too, you you said you you got some pushback from your team when you said, I want to figure out how to connect with each and every one of my employees. And that ended up emerging from Boise Bollinger as one of the chapters in my book, that if you're gonna be a successful leader, first you have to listen. You have to go around and listen, 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 listen before you come in and just make abrupt changes. And that's exactly what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, and Boise is like another just an amazingly thoughtful leader uh, who I've gotten a chance to, to know during my time as U.S. attorney, especially just the success of his 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 businesses over the years. He'll tell you, like, it's not, I rely on people. Like I rely, <laughs> I rely on making the connections to people and to tie it back to what we were talking about earlier uh, on reentry, Boise has been one of the strongest supporters of hiring formerly incarcerated people in his workplace and had been doing that and having success in, in doing so for years. Again, before it was you know, kind of the trend to talk about it. Uh, he was already doing that in that space because he saw the value in people, despite the fact that they had been, they'd made mistakes and paid their debts to society. There was value in people. He was ahead of his times for sure. Yes, he in, was. Yeah. In the shipyard industry and going and listening to the front line and taking the supervisors out of the equation and saying, you need to be nicer to your people. <laughs> I want to listen to them. You know who we just interviewed? Do you know Robert LeBlanc? I don't. I don't. Oh, he's great. He um, he was actually my student at Loyola, and he owns a hospitality, a boutique hospitality firm in New Orleans. And I'm trying to think if if, if you have you ever eaten at Sylvain? Of course, yes. Okay. Well, that's yes. one of his. <laughs> that's one of his. Got, got, that's got one it. of his. And he just opened up the Hotel Chloe recently. Yes, yes, his. yes. He and he's a younger leader. And what his big takeaway as far as is is what best practice as far as meaningful connection right now? He said, "I've learned." that we have um, much more frequent meetings 
and, uh, and, and in a reduced time. He said, so every single morning at 640, we get on the telephone with my leaders for 10 minutes every morning because I don't want them up at night thinking, oh God, I have to send an email. They know that in the morning we're going to connect for 10 minutes. He said, and then, you know, and then the once a week um, meetings are shorter as well. He wants to embed more frequency and less time. And, and I, I think that's where we are. Yeah, I think that's right. I, 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 I will tell you, there's one really good book out there that uh, called Death by Meeting, which <laughs> talks, a, talks a little bit about that. And the, the idea of having more effective meetings might mean you're, you actually have more meetings, but they're, they're, they're maybe more frequent, they're shorter, they're more precise, they're more targeted in terms of addressing certain topics or issues. So um, that's one of the ones that I, I tend to hand out, hand out to my uh my workforce team, my, my senior leadership team. Uh, and it's, it's going to be on their shelves right next to seismic shift. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> right next to leadership. Exactly. exactly. I think you're onto something because you had mentioned that you, you are trying to touch every person, whether it's a zoom call or not for one and a half minutes. Yes. yes. So it's, Exactly. It's, it's reducing. I think that I think we might be onto something, Kenneth. If we can roll this out, that that it's just you don't have to have a Zoom for an hour. No, people are losing their mind. <laughs> That's right. That's have right. Fifteen That's minutes, right. just a quick connection. Yeah, yeah. And we still have to figure out a way to to connect in person. I mean, I, I I'm not putting that <laughs> completely to the side, and uh, it's one of these things where I've learned. You know, I've got a lot of fantastic young people who serve as as front office assistants. Many of whom, like Raven, have served in the Peace Corps and uh, have you know been elementary school teachers, and they're at the earlier stages of their careers. And some of the most important lessons that I've learned about the the, the division itself have come through them. Right, they're fresh eyes who are coming in just like me, and they're saying, "Hey, this is working well. This is not working so well. This is, these are things that you should think about improving." Uh, and those came through one-on-one lunches with them, like during my first couple of weeks on the job. Right, so face to face, actually breaking bread, and and have, are you all back? Are you all in the office? Are so you say you go up to DC every week? So you're there. So essentially, we have. Um, we're still in, in, in max telework as a, as a department. What that means is that my front office team is typically there three to four days a week. I'm typically working here from Philadelphia at least one to two days a week. Uh, so yeah, we're, we've got some folks that are in the office. Some attorneys are in the office about the same frequency, uh, but the overwhelming majority of folks are still you know, working from home most of the time. Again, we've got folks that are on the road though and, you know, in courtrooms on a day-to-day basis on behalf of the public, uh, bringing these cases to bear. So uh, to those people, making sure that they're remaining safe while they're out there engaging with defense counsel and defendants and witnesses and judges and jurors, you know, that that becomes a real challenge for us to make sure that they're safe while they're still performing their very important public service. Absolutely. So we'll wrap it up with um, what does success look like for Kenneth Polite as the head of the criminal division in your relatively new position? If we're going to talk in a couple years, what does success look like? Yeah. So I think success for me um, means a couple of things. And, you know, just broadly speaking, it, you always hope that you leave the place better than you found it. Right. And, and that you make some positive contribution to it. 
I think that that a couple of the things that we are hoping to achieve is uh, include uh, making the work of the criminal division more victim focused uh, and and we're being very thoughtful about the types of cases that we bring, as well as the way that we engage with victims of some of the criminal investigations and prosecutions that we bring and making sure that they have a voice there. That's a that's a, that's going to be an increasingly more important part of the work that we do. And again, we're being very creative in how we do that. Some of the on the on the in, in terms of topics, I would say that corporate enforcement and particularly issues around healthcare fraud and it's, a, it's impact on the opioid uh, epidemic that continues to ravage our country, that is going to continue to be a very important function for us. We, we've just heard some very devastating stories, Michelle, around how uh, opioid addiction continues to, to cripple communities. And in, in, in particular, the, the, the sophistication of some of the schemes, right? The role of physicians, right? in terms of in terms of fueling that epidemic we've even heard of something called sober home abuse where where individuals are basically being cycled in and out of rehab centers being readdicted while they're there then coming back in and they're just being shopped around through these uh, rehab centers and without ever you know breaking the cycle of addiction that's crippling them and their families and so those types of offenses are going to be at the forefront of our work uh, in the healthcare fraud unit. Cryptocurrency and cybersecurity for us is is, uh, is absolutely a vital part of our portfolio, increasingly high pref- profile part of the work that we're doing. Uh, we have a new national cryptocurrency enforcement team, in fact, in fact, that's going to be focused on that. And then last but not least is, 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 is flat out trying to figure out ways to address violent crime, which is over and again, the message that we hear, whether I'm talking to somebody from New Orleans to Memphis to New York to Chicago to San Francisco, it is the forefront uh, effort of all of our law enforcement uh, partners right now. And the criminal division can play a vital role in that as well. Yeah, it made me feel a little bit better with all the carjackings in New Orleans when I found out it's not just us. No. No, unfortunately, sadly, sadly, there is some 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 solace received by knowing that it is it, it's a broader epidemic that we are seeing in the country. But again, what I'm seeing from state, local and federal uh, partners is that we're, there's no siloing. What we have to do is come together and figure out ways to, to be more impactful in terms of the types of cases and investigations that we're we're bringing to bear but also not leaving anything on the table and using every other resource that we have at our disposal to to fight it as well. And so uh, I know that that's something that, again, the criminal division is going to continue to lean forward and using all those tools. Thank you, Kenneth. I just kind of got when I was thinking about how grateful I am that you're one of the leaders of the United States right now and helping us. And I just feel such comfort uh, knowing that you're really taking care of us and these issues are at the forefront and that you're doing it through extraordinary connection and, and really thinking about the victims and, and, and treating your people as humans and wanting them to bring their full selves to work. I mean, this is all the stuff that, that, that I am so passionate about and you are the embodiment of connection. And I just can't thank you enough. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for the opportunity to be part of this narrative that you're putting forward. I know this is going to be impactful work for so many people in the workplace. 
Thank you so much and all the best to you and your family. So good to I see you. I can't wait till we talk again. I'm going to invent something else just so that you and I can have another conversation because you're it. amazing. Thank you, Kenneth. Have a beautiful day with your family. You too. This podcast directly parallels my new book titled The Seismic Shift in Leadership, How to Thrive in a New Era of Connection. Through a series of revealing interviews with 18 of the world's most compelling leaders, I will show you how connecting with yourself, your teams, and your organizations can get you to the next level, whatever that might be. The Seismic Shift in Leadership is available right now on Amazon or wherever books are sold. For more information about the book, you can visit michellekjohnston.com. Okay, that was a great interview you just did, Michelle. Thanks for doing that. We're starting to unpack these connection ideas, and you've got these pillars. And I just wanted to ask, you know, part of your story going through this was some internal things going on, maybe some internal conflict, some internal struggle of what this shift should be and what was kind of being downloaded to you. Tell tell me a little bit about the journey of this kind of first part of the connection journey. Yeah, when I realized that connection with the self was really the foundation of leadership success because you wouldn't, you can't connect with your team unless you're truly connected with yourself. If I were going to be successful in coaching leaders with this struggle, I knew I had to look in the mirror and make sure that I was demonstrating authenticity. And I realized that I wasn't, I thought I was, but my journey moving around every two years was I became really good at fitting in, you know, up in um, Nashville, trucker hats and Levi jeans, you know, were cool. And then you go to Tampa, Florida and all of a sudden big hair, (laughs) not trucker hats and Levi jeans. Um, You just, I learned how to fit in really quickly and easily. And I loved meeting new people and We always had a a good time. We saw it as a positive, learning new cultures. But what I didn't realize is that I just had gotten into this, this pattern of only trying to fit in. And so if you think about it, how was I able to demonstrate authenticity if all I was doing was fitting in? And I'll never forget one of my dear friends, Eleanor Sharp, had a really good friend from childhood named Brene Brown, who was just writing books where people were reading them. She was unknown at the time. And I remember her telling me about, she's doing some really, really interesting work, Michelle. You should read some of her books. And then, as we all know, Brene Brown is now a household name. She went viral after a TED Talk and um, has written many more books and is just amazing. Oprah, Netflix, you name it. And she has her own podcast And the book that Eleanor gave me that Brene Brown wrote was called The Gifts of Imperfection. And I remember reading that first chapter and I just was struck because her research as a social worker, the data she collected was if you spend your whole time trying to fit in, then you never feel like you belong and you're not owning your story. And there's a a disconnect between you and, and others. And so I realized that that I had been hiding pieces of myself because I, it's not that I was ashamed of moving around all the time. I just didn't know how to explain it to people. So Casey, if you said, um, 
I'm from North Carolina because you live in North Carolina right now. I'd say, oh, great. Um, I lived there for a number of years in Asheville. And that's true. My parents lived there in Asheville for eight years when I was in graduate school. But I didn't grow up there. I don't, you know, I don't know much about it. But I would try just to find that commonality. And rather than say, and, and, and so then, Casey, you might walk away thinking, oh, Michelle's from North Carolina. And so I wouldn't share pieces of myself because I was scared. I was like, do people think that my dad was in the CIA? <laughs> like that he was running or in the mob? I didn't know what people thought. And so I just didn't tell people. And so was it, when I was in the South attending Auburn, I really didn't talk about living mostly in the North. And then when I was in the North, I didn't really talk about being from the South. So I would hide these pieces of me thinking that that was what's best for fitting in, but then realizing that I hadn't owned my story and I hadn't embraced where I came from, who I was. And I didn't think that I was doing a good job demonstrating authenticity. Yeah. You have, you, you've shared a phrase with me. It's critical to show compassion to others by understanding yourself. And I think the combo of compassion with kind of self-reflection is a really interesting formula. Is that what you're kind of describing this compassion plus? Yeah, it's very hard for anybody. And we just take the word leader out of it as it's in, it's very hard for any human to truly connect with somebody else at a meaningful level and be able to show compassion and care when you've got a wall up. And so I was trying to be everything, but I didn't know who I was. So I was trying to be whoever I thought I needed to be and, and that's what I call in my book, it's, it's the mask of perfection. When you're going after perfection, it equals disconnection. There's just a wall. So how can you really um, have a meaningful relationship with others when you're just not even yourself? You're just trying to be somebody else. I'll give you an example here at Loyola. I was a really young, or at least I felt incredibly young when I was hired here. I was still finishing my dissertation from LSU and I think I maybe was 28 years old and um, was hired to teach an MBA class here at Loyola. And I was so self-conscious of how young I was and how energetic I was and how positive I was that I looked around at the majority of my colleagues who were not like me at all. And I thought, well, then that's what I need to be because that's what success looks like. I certainly can't be me. And so for the first number of years, I, I had very little connection with my students because I would walk in and there was a wall between them and me. I wasn't myself. I, I, I was super serious. <laughs> I'm not the super serious person. I was no nonsense and really strict. And as a matter of fact, this is so funny. One of the um, leaders who I interviewed in my book, Robert LeBlanc, was one of my students in the uh, one of my first years teaching here. And when I went and interviewed him, because he's become quite successful, and I hope to have him on one of these episodes, when I went to interview him at the Chloe Hotel that he had just opened up, he goes, Michelle, I mean, Dr. Johnston, you still scare me. <laughs> Which cracks me up because that's just not who I am. But it's who I was trying to be back then. Yeah, I don't think this stuff with leadership, the, these shifts were built um, maliciously for the most part. How did we end up in this place where leaders feel like they have to put that, you know, front on? Yeah, I think that that's the way corporate America was back then. You had your professional self 
and you showed up and you didn't share anything about your personal life, um, you did your job and then you went home and you gave orders and directives and people listened and they didn't ask many questions. That's just the way it was, you know? And now we're just asking so much more from leaders. And again, I think leadership is hard and you need all the help you can get because it is constantly shifting of what's effective. Every time you have a new team, a new promotion, you got to figure out, well, what's going to motivate this team? How do I connect with this team? It's constantly evolving. Yeah, this is this is good stuff. So just kind of last big thought here to end this episode. Any leader, new, seasoned, um, how can they, how do they know if they're doing this well, if they need to improve it? What's something maybe that you can give them to to reflect on and say, I can charge into this tomorrow and, and give this a shot? Yeah, the good news is nowadays companies do the performance appraisals differently. I'd say 15 years ago, they would meet with their employees once a year and say, here are the three things you need to work on. And then the research uncovered that that is not a good way at all to motivate a person to focus on their opportunities for improvement all the time. Um, you really, So now there's much more internal coaching and external coaching. It used to be, and Marshall talks about this, than it used to be when people would see Marshall walk down the hall, they think, oh gosh, <laughs> who got in trouble? Who needs Marshall? And now, my gosh, the 15 leaders that I'm currently, the chiefs that I'm coaching right now, the reason why they got the resources, the money to have an executive coach is because they're extraordinary and the company wants to invest in them. So it's no longer just once a year. It is really all about continuous improvement and asking your employees and having check-ins. And it's just much more intense these days. Thank you for joining us on Seismic Shift. And before you go, can I ask one favor of you? Do you mind sharing today's episode with a leader you know? The power of this conversation is found in you using it and sharing it to create real connection in your life. Lastly, I'd like to thank Loyola University New Orleans and the Terra Firma audio team for helping bring this content to life.